The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans 9, verses 1 to 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. How good it is to hear all the voices singing. Man, it's just a blessing to be able to be in this room together. And uh, I hope that those of you who are online, you will feel safe and comfortable to come (laughs) and join us as God gives us opportunity. I want to um, think about the uh, volunteer survey that uh, we've mentioned the last couple of weeks. And uh, By the way, at the end of the service, if you have an iPhone and we have your number, you're going to get a ding and you're going to get a link. Uh, You're going to see that survey on your phone. But uh, again, I would encourage you, please fill it out. We have ministries and different areas of of opportunity to serve. And uh, we really can't go ahead in certain ministries without volunteers and leadership. And so we're depending on the body of Christ to be returning to ministry and to activity and together. And so I trust that you'll fill it out. Even if there's just one thing on that survey that you can say, yeah, I think I can help with that. That would be really cool. Also, uh, for the election tomorrow, I just want to add Psalm 22, 28 says, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. And how blessed to know that. I was reading this morning in Psalm 9, and I read this scripture in Psalm 9 and verse 15, where it says, The nations have sunk into the pit that they have made, into the net that they have hidden, their own foot has been caught. Friends, that's what we see happening in government. We see all kinds of things going on in the world where bad decisions are being made, We're on a course of action that is certainly not the way that God would be wanting our country to be led in various ways. Why would we think as followers of Jesus Christ that the government of our land is going to have the same values that we have as we read and study the Scriptures? And so we must pray. We must pray. And we must not put our hope in government. 
We must put our hope in the Lord. For as the Psalm 22 says, He is the sovereign one. He rules over nations. And we trust God that tomorrow as a government is, it comes in, that uh, whoever it is, that God will have his way. Let's pray for that right now and so we get ready to hear the word of God shared this morning. Father, our eyes are on you. And Lord, we confess that sometimes we have forgotten that we are strangers in a foreign land, that uh, we have a heavenly city, a heavenly home, that we have a, uh, a, we're marching to a different drum. And Father, we want to be good citizens and we want to we pray for our country and our leaders and, and everything. But Lord God, we realize that they desperately need you and they need our praying and they need our support. And so we pray, Father, would you lead the election tomorrow? Would you overrule? Would you guide us, oh Father? And whatever part we play, we may we do that. And so we give you the results of tomorrow. And today, as we just take time now to open up this precious portion of Scripture, which is often neglected in Romans 9 to 11, we would ask you in the coming months, would you give us eyes to see the incredible truths that are in these Scriptures? And help us, Holy Spirit, to know how they imply and apply to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning we are going to meet a man who had a burden The man's name is the Apostle Paul, and the burden that he had was for his own people, his own kinsmen, the Jewish people. And the burden that he had was that they would not be left behind, that they would not be uh, overlooked somehow, that they would come to see their Messiah in Jesus Christ, that they would not be lost eternally. That's the, the burden that is upon the heart of the Apostle Paul. Back in January, we began our study of Romans, and in chapters 1 to 4, we studied between January and Easter, and we, we called it a case for the Christian faith. Then after Easter, we studied chapters 5 to 8, and we called that section, Walking in a New Life of Faith. Today, we begin a new section entitled, Uniting Jews and Gentiles in Faith, and then after Easter, we're going to finish and uh, continue in Romans and uh, finish chapters 12 to 16, transformed, living a transformed life by faith. But today, as we enter into this particular section, we realize that it is probably one of the most neglected portions of Scripture in all of the Bible. Because as people get into it, they just don't understand what the point is. Why is it that it's so important? The, ch- the church in Rome that Paul was writing was a little band of believers in Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that that, um, they were mostly Gentiles in nature. There was a chance that the entire footing of the church in the central part of Rome, in Rome itself, the capital city, that there would begin an anti-Semitic kind of attitude in the very church at the center of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, by this time, had extended almost from England to India. It was vast. It would reach its zenith in 117 under Trajan. And in this little, little town or little city church of Rome, there was great influence because even in Rome at that time, there was anti-Semitism going on. Many Jews had been expelled from Rome. We meet them in Acts chapter 18, Aquila and Priscilla, for example. The other thing I'd like you to know about this church in Rome 
is that they have never been met by Paul. Paul did not plant the church in Rome, unlike most of the letters that he writes to churches about. Uh, in fact, they have had no New Testament literature, no documents. They have not met any apostle, not Paul, not Peter, not a leader like the church in Jerusalem had James. They are a band of small believers in Jesus Christ, many of whom we believe were converted on the day of Pentecost or had come to Christ in another city like Aquila and Priscilla had on another missionary journey and then had gone back to Rome to help the believers there. So here we see a group of believers that were kind of flying solo and Paul hears reports about them and he is earnest to go and visit them Indeed, he is going to visit them, but not so much as he had intended, but under, under house arrest as a prisoner. But he, he really wants to send them a robust and strong and complete description, explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that they have believed. That's why the word gospel, it, it occurs 60 times in this letter of Romans. 60 times. It's an explanation of the gospel. But let's tell, let's, let's explain it today. Let's acknowledge today that it's a fair question. Why in this incredible Magna Carta of the gospel from Romans 1 to 16, why on earth in the middle of it in chapters 9 to 11, he takes the time to describe the, the, the point of Israel in history? Because as many have said, <clears throat> you could read the end of chapter 8 pick up chapter 12, verse 1, and not really skip a beat. And so many that study Romans see it as a detour, a parenthesis, an unnecessary thing. Maybe necessary for Paul's day, but not really for us. So they skip over. And indeed, if they do that, they make, they make a grave mistake because they don't understand Chapter 12, verse 1, when Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy. <laughs> You're going to miss the point of what's in chapter 12, verse 1, if you don't understand the mercy, a particular kind of mercy that God extends to Israel and another kind of mercy that God extends to most of us Gentiles. You're going to miss the point. Now, the church in Rome that was largely Gentile needed to understand some things about Israel because they were largely Gentile in nature. And even today, we find many people not understanding the significance of Israel in history, not just the deep root that our church, Jesus Christ Church, has in Israel in Old Testament history, but even understanding future purposes for Israel. And so many have come to believe in what's called replacement theology. You know, I mean, the grace of our God in Jesus Christ in the New Testament has replaced the law of Moses in the Old Testament. Friends, that is not only an oversimplification of the Bible, it is a, gr a gross misrepresentation of what God has done and is doing. And so, um, very simply, we're going to outline chapters 9, 10, and 11 in the coming months by looking at chapter 9, God's dealings with uh, Israel in the past, his past dealings in electing grace. 
You know what? Abraham, the fountainhead of Israel, there was nothing in Abraham that made God say, hey, I want him on my team. He was a moon worshiper in Ur of the Chaldeans in a pagan land. And God said, I'm going to put my grace on him, and I'm going to make a nation out of him. God's teaching us something about electing grace. Secondly, in chapter 10, we read mostly about God's present dealings with Israel in a season of discipline. You don't have to read the New Testament very long before you realize that all the Jewish leaders in the New Testament times rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And Israel has continued to reject Jesus as their Messiah. That's what Christ means, Messiah, anointed one. And then in chapter 11, we're going to be understanding God's future dealings with Israel in the fulfillment of the promises that God has made. And so this is going to be a a great journey, but let's begin going back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And let's just understand some things that Paul is very understanding, and but we need to understand in order to understand Paul. He says in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek or Gentile. Now what is it that Paul means by this? What does it mean that to the Jew first, salvation is to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile? The story is told of the wife of Hudson Taylor, Hudson Taylor was the founder of China Inland Mission, presently Overseas Missionary Fellowship. Tim and Brenda Noble are are resident missionaries with them, home from Thailand. And um, it's said that uh, the wife of Hudson Taylor tells the story that on January 1st, for several years, Hudson Taylor would write a check for a certain amount of money. He would either walk over or send it somehow, to a man by the name of John Wilkinson of the Mild May Mission to the Jews. It started on January the 1st, 1897. And for several years, he would write a check to John Wilkinson of the Mild May Mission to the Jews. He would walk over and he would give it to him, and then John Wilkinson would precisely, in the same day, turn around and write a check to China Inland Mission with, with the same amount, <laughs> we're told. On the check that Hudson Taylor would write, he would put in bold print on the front of the check, to the Jew first. And John Wilkinson would write on his check, and also to the Greeks or Gentiles. (laughs) And Mrs. Taylor says later on, this helpful interchange of sympathy was kept over many years. What does it mean to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile? Paul answers some of this in chapter 9 in the verses that were read to us this morning. But let me just explain two realities that Paul knew that we also must know. First of all, as I said, the church in Rome was largely Gentile, non-Jewish people. Come to Christ through faith in him, and, and they needed to understand for their own sake the depth of the, the root of their faith in the Old Testament— But they also needed to know so that there would not be an ostracism of Jewish believers that would come to Christ. There was the real possibility of anti-Semitism beginning in the fledgling church. And so the believers in Rome received this letter from Paul and they'd read it 
And there was a possibility that after reading eight chapters of glorious truth about sin and then redemption and justification by faith and sanctification in the Holy Spirit, after eight chapters, Paul stops and he says, there's a real chance that some of them are thinking, well, how can we trust God in these words that nothing As the end of chapter 8 says, nothing in all creation will separate you from the love of God which is in Christ. How can we trust those words if Israel, the apple of God's eye, his own chosen people, are not saved by rejecting Jesus? There's something really important at stake here that, that Paul is addressing. And so let's understand what. And so I'm going to look at this scripture in three stages. First of all, I want to look at the burden that Paul was given. Secondly, the blessings that Israel were given. And thirdly, the Savior that the world was given. Let's start by looking at the burden. The burden that Paul was given is found beginning in verse 1. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Here it is. For I could wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you have a burden for the lost? Do you have a burden for someone in your life who you know does not know Jesus Christ and therefore is not forgiven of sin, does not have salvation, does not look forward to eternal life? Do you have a burden for the lost? The sense of burden, this sense of burden comes over me every so often and I don't have as bad a sleep pattern as Pastor Kevin does. (laughs) But every so often, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and it'll just be this wave of cold reality that sits on me. And I think of people I love deeply who are outside of Christ. You know, the burden for the lost cannot be faked. You cannot muster this up. You cannot put it on. It is not an appendage to the Christian heart. The only way I think that you will ever increase and intensify in a burden for someone who is lost is by magnifying and drawing near in your own intimacy with God the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you do not draw near to God in an in intimate relationship with Him, you will not ever have a deep burden for the lost. Like someone said, Oh Lord, let my heart be broken by that which breaks the heart of God. You see, only God can impart this burden for the lost. And as you align with God, as you draw near to God and God's heart and God's thoughts and God's ways become your ways, you start to feel God and his emotion, his ways. That's what Paul's doing here. Paul felt for his kinsmen, his Jewish heritage, his people. And it's interesting that Paul uses seems like a lot of why does he say three different ways 
One, I speaking the truth in Christ. It's like Paul's putting the hand on the Bible. I swear to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He says, secondly, I'm not lying. Thirdly, he says, my conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. All right, Paul, relax. We believe you. What's he doing? Well, he's vowing before God to these Gentile listeners, the church in Rome. He's vowing before God that if you think anything is bigger on my heart than this, you're wrong. This is what keeps me up at night, Paul says. This is what drives me on to missionary journeys through all the suffering that I'm facing. This is what draws me down into the depths of prayer on my knees. What is it? It's that my people, the people who should have from the beginning called Jesus Christ of Nazareth their Messiah, that they would be lost eternally. That's what's on the heart of Paul. Paul has established his sincerity in those three ways, but if you think that's an overstatement, wait till you see in verse 2 what his burden actually is. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for the sake of my brothers. The word accursed is the word in Greek anathema. The word accursed anathema means literally given up to destruction. Give it up to destruction. I could wish myself that I was given over to eternal destruction for the sake of my fellow Jews. Paul is saying, I could wish that I was condemned to hell for my friends, my people, if they would be saved. Now, friends, I want you to know this is emotional language. Why do I know it's emotional language? Well, first of all, he says, I wish I could. The point is, it's not possible. You see, the justice and the mercy of God will never be compromised. There is only one person in all of eternity that can ever take someone else's place instead of them going to be damned, and it's Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ can be a substitute for someone else's punishment. That's the gospel. And so Paul is not saying something here. Jesus said in John 15, 13, no greater love is anyone than this, that he laid down his life for a friend. He wasn't talking about someone else. He was talking about himself. He was talking about himself laying down his life and conquering sin and death and judgment. I want you to know, as I examine my heart, I don't know if I could say what Paul is saying. Maybe I could say what Paul is saying, that I would eternally be lost if, if, if it meant my family was eternally saved. Maybe I could say that. But for the most part, when I search my heart, I can't say that. Folks, don't, don't give yourself a pass here, okay? This is not the same as taking a bullet for someone and then being trusting that you're in eternal life right after that. No, -uh, that's not what this is about. This is saying, condemn me, save them. This is incredible language. By the mercy and justice of God, it's not possible. But Paul is describing the depth 
of his burden. He says, I have sorrow, deep sorrow, unceasing anguish. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. This is a burden that the Lord puts on our hearts. Draw near to God and you'll get this burden. And God will use you, your prayers. You know, there are people, there are people in many ministries around the world that have adopted Paul's burden. Some of them are Messianic Jews, people who have come to believe in Jesus as their Messiah and they're Jewish. Others are Gentile believers and Christians who have just seen the gospel and want to witness to, G, to, to Jewish people, their Messiah. Clearly, clearly, if God has called you into a Jewish ministry for the gospel, you go. And if God has called you to a Gentile ministry in the gospel, you go. You obey where God sends you. But there was in the latter half of the 20th century a very, very dangerous doctrine, a corruption of the gospel that was being circulated among the church. In the latter part of the 20th century, and I want to just quote at length what John Stott says about what was being proposed. He says, It is understandable that since the Holocaust, Jews have demanded an end to the Christian missionary activity among them, and that many Christians have felt embarrassed about continuing it. It is even mooted that Jewish evangelism is an unacceptable form of anti-Semitism. So some Christians have attempted to develop a theological basis for leaving Jews alone in their Judaism. He goes on to say, reminding us that God's covenant with Abraham was an everlasting covenant, they maintain that it is still in force and that therefore God saves Jewish people through their own covenant without any necessity for them to believe in Jesus. This proposal is usually called a two-covenant theology. <clears throat> Friends, this is completely contrary to the teaching of Romans 9 to 11. In fact, I don't know how you could believe that Paul could have the burden that he's describing if he believed this. If he believed that there was one track of salvation that the Jews had based on their relationship to Abraham by a blood relationship, not faith, blood relationship, and they got their free pass. And then there was this other track that everybody had to come through the gate and the door called Jesus Christ. And Paul says, that's, that's just ridiculous. And John Stott is describing that. Let me read to you another quote by N.T. Wright. He says, the irony is that, the irony is that in order to avoid anti-Semitism, they have advocated a position, the non-evangelization of the Jews, which Paul would precisely regard as anti-Semitic. You see, the point is, what kind of an expression of love and support for an ethnicity could there be to believe you to, for you to believe in the truth of the one way of Jesus Christ and then not share that love with them? It is unloving to not pray for and seek to share Christ with all people, including those who believe that their way will get them to heaven. And so I, I pause on that just to say that, uh, yeah, the Jewish people need one by one to come to Jesus Christ and to acknowledge their Messiah. Well, let's move on to the second point, the blessings that Israel was given. In verse 4, 
They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and so on. There's a whole list of blessings that God has bestowed upon Israel. And so let's talk about that. We're going to go through real quickly. First of all, he says in verse 4, they're called Israelites. Nobody else called Israelites. What does that mean? Well, this is the name that means that they were descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, whose name was called Israel, meaning he wrestles with God. They're called Israelites. Next, he says theirs is the adoption. The only time this word is used of Israel, the rest of the time in Scripture it's used of Christians. But theirs is the adoptions. Exodus 4.22, Israel is my son, God says. Next, in verse 4, it's, um, theirs is the glory, a reference to the Shekinah glory, where God's glory dwelt among the Israelites in the temple. And they were, had this privilege of no other nation had a God like the living God dwell among them. Fourthly, they, theirs is the covenants. No other nation, with no other nation, had God made covenants, starting with Abraham and then going on to Moses and to David and so on. No other people had a covenant making God all the way to the new covenant through Christ. Theirs is the law, the giving of the law. Remember how Exodus, Moses met God on Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments were given and all the rest of the law of what a righteous life, what God expects of humans. And Israel was was to be stewards and keepers of the law for the rest of the nations on earth. This privileged people called Israel. To them belong the worship, verse 4 as well. This entire system of worship that was given, the sacrificial systems, the priesthoods, all of that was, was so that God could dwell among sinners, Israel. And, and people would come to know him. God-fearing Gentiles would come to know him as well as Jews. To them belong the promises, general statement, but all the promises that were given to Abraham and down to Christ. And then verse 5 to them belong the patriarchs, literally the fathers. We could say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but we could add maybe Moses and David, the fathers of Israel. To them belong the fathers. And then finally, as a crescendo, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is what leads us to our final point this morning, <clears throat> which is a description of the Savior that the world was given, Jesus. In verse 5, Paul is describing four critical features of the Jesus Christ that the Scriptures declare. The Jewishness of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, and the supremacy of Jesus. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Let's look at them one at a time. First of all, we'll talk about the Jewishness of Jesus. It says, from their race, Jesus was 100% born into a Jewish family, descended from Abraham and David. The genealogy of Jesus, his father, adopted father through Joseph, was, is found in Matthew 1 of his mother in Luke chapter 3. This is the Jewish Jesus, the only Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Secondly, his humanity. It says, according to the flesh, Jesus was fully, fully man. He was fully human. 
The Bible teaches that he suffered in all ways like we are. He was a son who had to learn obedience through what he suffered. He is a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he is fully human. That's the kind of Savior he is. He understands you because he is fully human. Thirdly, he is uh, the deity of Jesus. It says, who is God over all. He is not only a Jewish Jesus and a fully human Jesus, he is fully God. Fully God. Many statements in Scripture that could say that. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Titus 2.13, we are awaiting the second coming of Christ, the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ says. And then finally, the supremacy of Jesus. What does that word supremacy mean? It means that he is supreme. It means that there's nothing more important, higher, or above Jesus. Jesus is over all, it says, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The word in Greek is epipanton. Jesus is over all. Epipanton is nothing higher than Jesus. There is no power on earth or in heaven above. There is no being not the devil, not his demons, not any evil force. There is no ruler. There's no energy. There's nothing that is above Jesus. He is sovereign God. He is above all, over all. He rules. He is king of kings, lord of lords. He's worthy of doxology, folks. He's worthy of all praise because he is the one who alone has the title, the ruler of all. May God be praised. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.
Jesus. We're going to read some scripture together. This is the doxology from Romans chapter 11. Please read together with me. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Lord God, thanks for meeting us here today. Thank you for placing us in your church, for creating the body of Christ, that we can be part of it, that we can be part of, of what you have created to honor Christ with. And I pray that you would continue to guide us and show us how to lift one another up as we point ourselves to your son and as we point the world to your son and we recognize that he is in control of all of that we recognize that you do all the heavy lifting when it comes to your kingdom but you allow us to be in it and i pray lord that all of this would be for jesus from him and through him and to him and we give you the glory we pray this in jesus name amen um praise god for today and uh, we invite you to, to stay and visit if you want. And like you heard before, tomorrow we're using this space for something completely different. And so if you are able to help with moving some chairs, we're just going to be over there and come and find us. Have a great day.